people. What an encouragement uh, to be together today in worshiping Christ. If you would please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Because rather than reading the account of Jesus cleansing the temple from Luke 19 where we have been, I'm going to ask you to turn to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, There we find in chapter 11 verse 11 supplemental detail as he picks up Uh, Jesus picks up at the end of the first day, immediately after Christ's triumphal entry, day one. Mark's account records Jesus' cursing of the fig tree early on that second morning. The fig tree, as you may already know, is, is a figurative illustration of Israel from the Old Testament as they were repeatedly uh, identified as being fruitless by the prophets. Uh, illustration of the fruitlessness of Israel. Beginning in verse 11 of Mark 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late, end of day one. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, He went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Well, after Jesus' triumphal entry, and after he had pronounced a a judgment through a prophecy on Israel. We saw that last week on day one. He stopped into the temple briefly now to survey the activities of what was going on. This is the end of the day after the triumphal entry. He, He stops in briefly to take a peek around, no doubt angered by what he saw. But it was getting late in the day that first day, so Scripture tells us that he and his disciples then turned around to retire in Bethany, which served as kind of their home base during Passover. Bethany is where Martha, Mary, and Lazarus lived, and and history tells us that Jerusalem was so crowded during Passover that there, there weren't enough facilities for people to stay. There weren't enough houses for everyone. Jesus then went in the evenings with his disciples two miles out of town to Bethany. And it's early on the first triumphal day as he rides in on the donkey that we read in John 12, verse 20, 
that there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. Now, now these were not Jews who, who lived in Greece. The, these were Gentile Greek proselytes who were traveling on pilgrimage to Jerusalem to uh, perhaps experience Passover for their first time. These, these were Gentiles. Personally, I find it intriguing as you, as you look over the Gospel of John, and especially in chapter 12, that John records the following dialogue, this very brief dialogue, yet never tells the reader exactly what these, these Gentiles, these Greeks, wanted with Jesus. We're only told that some Greeks, who were among those who were traveling to the feast, came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Then Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. That's the last we hear of it. What did they want to tell Jesus? Why did these Greeks seek him out? We're, we're not explicitly told. We're just given that narrative. That's it. We don't really know. And we should be cautious always about reading things in or real, uh, reading dialogue into unclear passages. But we are allowed to ask questions. We are allowed to ask questions. Why this, this urgency to see Jesus? It, it could be anything. It could be any number of things. But regardless what the Greeks wanted, this alerts us, the reader, that they were seeking divine truth. Where would they find that divine truth? Would they find it at the temple where the feast is going on? Uh, Where would those who are traveling from far away, Greece, on pilgrimage, probably taking them weeks to get there, are they going to find that divine truth at the temple? They're not. Actually, what are the Greeks going to find? What What are they going to see I think this could be in the mind of Jesus. Since the Greeks visited him on day one, I believe this could be in the mind of Jesus as he stops in to take a peek on the end of that first day to exactly what's going on in the temple. I don't think Jesus likes what he finds. In fact, I think we're all pretty sure of it. Because on the next very, uh, very next morning when he headed into Jerusalem, he, he became hungry. It's breakfast time. And he approached a fig tree to to see if he could find, note, anything on it. Again, again the, the fig tree is symbolic of a fruitless Israel. The prophet Micah declared, Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat, or a first ripe fig for which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land, says the prophet, and there is no upright person among them. That's Micah 7, verse 1. Uh, Like Jesus, as we're seeing in our passage, Micah, the prophet, sought fruit, but there are only leaves. All there are is leaves. We, we find a similar, or we find similar fig laments in, in the prophets Jeremiah, Hosea, and Joel. Israel is hysterically 
uh, historically a nation lacking fruit. Reading Mark 11, you might ask yourself, well, what's the problem? What's so horrible about this? Because Mark himself acknowledges it was not the season for figs. That is true. April, when Passover happened in April, that was not the season yet for figs. Figs don't ripen until June in Israel. The large leaves of a fig tree normally appear in April. So the tree gives the appearance that it's in season. Everything looks like it's on time. Why then is Jesus so angry? Well, he's angry because he wasn't looking for figs. This tree's fig buds, the buds, were supposed to form last month in March. That's when the buds would form before the leaves of the fig tree. And these edible buds were often used by the people as they were traveling for for something quick to eat. The buds should have appeared before the leaves in the complete absence of anything indicates the fig tree will not bear fruit this year. Has leaves, no buds. No buds means no fruit. This is why Matthew and Mark both emphasize that Jesus found nothing but leaves. There, there was nothing else on the tree. The, the leaves offered an appearance the fig tree was alive, but there was nothing on it that could nourish anybody. Uh, the lack of the buds assures Israel is not going to produce any fruit. This is the reason Jesus curses the tree, saying, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. You know, this fig tree serves, uh, the parable of the fig tree, in a sense, serves as a living, a walking and talking parable of Jesus. This is this is historical event that happened, but it teaches a story about Israel. Um, it is a parable about God's judgment upon Israel, which he prophesied in our passage that we studied last week. They were a nation that offered a superficial appearance of being alive, but no fruit to validate No fruit to validate. There was another parable, by the way, that Jesus alluded to this with Israel, taught earlier back in Luke 13. We went through that passage some months ago, and it signified that Israel's final opportunity to repent was soon to pass. Listen to this, Jesus said in Luke chapter 13. A man had a fig tree, which he had planted in his vineyard, that's Israel, uh, the nation of Israel, And he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for for this year too, this was the vineyard keeper, until I dig around it and put in some fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine, But if not, cut it down. Folks, Israel's time is up. It was prophesied, it was foretold, and now their time is up. Do you think that that Jesus then is going to find any any fruit of righteousness at the temple? Probably not. As verse 15 says, Mark 11 again, Then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. 
And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. The temple, the first temple, the the temple site originally built by Solomon or King Solomon, it, it signified the dwelling place of God as as King Solomon dedicated the temple, he made us aware that it is to be a place of prayer. That's what Isaiah the prophet said as well, that God's house will be a house of prayer. God's dwelling place and a house of prayer. The merchandising of it. The merchandising indicated the, the whole nation had been corrupted from the roots to the leaves. The whole nation is corrupted. So, so Jesus gets busy, all right? Um, he surveyed the temple atmosphere the evening before. This is the next morning now. And he drives out these peddlers. These, these peddlers with their wares. And he drives them all out of the temple completely out. Think about it for a second. I thought about this. You got Jesus here. Think if you were sitting in their place. If you were the one who was trying to peddle something off on God's people and he showed up. Whoa, that's going to be an uncomfortable feeling. They were showcasing sacrifices. They had pigeons and doves. The Gospel of John adds that they also had had livestock, cattle, and sheep, or lambs and oxen. You know, every sacrifice that could be given to God could be purchased for a price. There were also money changers available, very important, so that they could exchange foreign currencies. They could exchange any currencies where, where people could acquire not only those, those sacrifices, but that the required half-shekel temple tax that was required of every Jew, accepted by the priests of the temple, only in a specific coin. Only one coin you could use to, to offer that half-shekel tax. Exchange rates were exorbitant. They were excessive. Some reports go up to uh, 12% or more exchange rates for the half shekel. All of, these, all of these services are provided with a price. Prices that extorted the traveling pilgrims from all around, even Israelites themselves coming down from Galilee and other places. They were extorted. Israel's spiritual leadership had no, had no problem with any of this. No problem with it. In fact, the, the chief priests are known to have sold franchises in the temple courts for these merchants to operate. Little, little kiosks in the temple court by which these leaders became filthy rich. Filthy rich. Uh, this is what Jesus saw. Worse even, this is what everybody saw when they entered into the temple of God, as they, as they approached the, the temple of great Yahweh, this was the picture that was before them. If you, if you didn't know it before, there were three main divisions to the, to the temple mount grounds. There was the inner court that was reserved only for Jewish males. That was the closest uh, to, the, to the Holy of Holies, the inner court. There was a women's court that they called it that permitted both Jewish males and females could, uh, could access. These two courts, the men's court and the women's court, along with the temple itself, were surrounded by a privacy curtain 
that went around it. It was, it was called the sacred enclosure, all right? No Gentile was permitted inside. Not inside that area. The outer court was by, was by far the largest of the courts where everyone, anyone who wanted to enter or attend the feast could enter. Uh, the outermost court is where the merchandising and where the buying and selling, where the exploiting occurred. Do you know what they called this outermost court? They called it the court of the Gentiles. That's where all of this went on, the court of the Gentiles. And it had become a a cesspool of corruption. I can't prove it. I've not heard anyone suggest it, so buyer beware. I I personally can't help but wonder, when, when those Greeks, when those Gentiles came to Jesus the day before, and, you know, asking Philip, hey, Philip, will you show us to Jesus? We want to speak with him. Sure, we w- sir, we wish to see Jesus. I can't help but, after traveling for perhaps weeks from Greece to attend Passover, if they were going to seek clarification from Jesus about whether or not this is what the Jewish religion is all about. Making a buck serving as a tourist trap for people, a a carnival bazaar, a yard sale. Sorry, Gerald. Yard sale's been postponed. Not for this. Not for this. But this was no fundraiser for kids to go to summer camp. Instead, merchants and religious leaders had conspired amongst themselves to enrich themselves through religion by offering what they thought was an acceptable manner to approach God. You can buy it. They required the half-shekel tax. You can find that in Exodus 30, verse 13. And that was a tax. It's only about five bucks. It's a $5 tax in today's dollars, roughly. And it was demanded a half shekel of every Jew, and it was meant to symbolize, if you look at it there in Exodus, it was meant to symbolize that atonement is equal for everyone. For the wealthy person or for the, for the poor person, it was all the same tax, the half shekel. Everyone approaches at the same cost of atonement. Um, Israel suggested they were wanting to profit off that off the half-shekel tax that represented atonement, profiting off the exchange of what God asked. I get asked this now and then, not all that often, but I do get asked, I don't have a problem with fundraisers for camp or for other functions or for missionaries who come in and, and to raise money at church. Ministries need to raise money. You, you can't do it without fundraising. The problem here that Jesus is addressing was that the law bound the Jews to pilgrimage for Passover. God demanded the half shekel it was required. They, they must offer sacrifice. So, so they have to approach these priests who offered the sacrifice on their behalf. They, they served as the middleman. People had to go through those priests because the priests are the ones who you know, hoisted the lamb up or uh, uh, sacrificed the pigeon or the dove. Um, that, was not, uh, that was the problem here. Th- these were all requirements in the law. 
The problem with the religious leaders is that they had turned an act of worship, an act of sacrifice, into a business transaction that they could make money off of. They had inserted themselves as the middleman who controlled access to God for a price. Worship had further been corrupted as they, you know, they devised, they concocted an approval procedure to inspect the sacrifices that people brought from home. be like someone going through your purse at the movie theater uh, to see if you brought in candy. Hey, you can't have that here. We sell our own candy. They checked everyone at the door. And, and if your lamb wasn't perfect... They would reject it and then require you to buy their lamb at a steep markup. They had had lambs there for purchase. You need our pigeons. We've got pigeons. You need our coinage. And if you're required to travel from Greece, no problem. We can even exchange that foreign currency for you. It'll just cost you a small fee. Folks, this was a scheme devised to get rich off spiritual worship, and most of the practices had, had little or no basis in the law. Yes, we have to acknowledge that Deuteronomy chapter 17 prohibited any lamb that was blind or lame, or we are told with serious defect. Well, define serious defect. Try to define that. Consider this. You know, a poor family traveling down from Galilee has, has a small, modest flock of their own. Uh, God says to bring the best of your flock and offer a spotless lamb, one without defect. So they might pick the best out of their humble flock. This is the best I've got. But when they arrive at the temple, they've got, they've got an inspector there that says, you know what, that, its ear looks a little bit funny. Something about its tail, that that didn't grow right. There's something wrong with the best that you've got. And they would make up any means possible to disqualify it in order to sell the family a pre-certified lamb. Folks, you know, having grown up around some livestock and being from a farming community, I recall there weren't many perfect animals in the herds. Not many who were perfect and something couldn't be found that wasn't though a serious defect so i began thinking about this um do you know what i think may have become common or maybe a default for some after experiencing two or three trips to passover and having their their sacrifice the best of what they got being rejected for for really no merit you know, I imagine that they might eventually become discouraged with bringing what they've got to God and say, you know, well, honey, you know, we're, we're not going to take one of our own lambs anymore up to sacrifice to the temple. Everywhere we drag him every year, uh, drag him all the way up to the temple, it gets rejected. We end up dragging the lamb around all week long because we could not, couldn't offer that. And, and then we drag it all the way home again. I mean, we can't get rid of this thing. Let's just buy one when we get there. You know, no sacrifice that we're ever going to offer is going to be good enough anyhow. Let's just leave what we got at home. And over time, the priest could cultivate people's behavior, you know. Just bring your money. 
we'll do the rest. You know, for a price, we can streamline this whole thing for you, this whole worship process. You just show up. You know, bring your wallet with you. Disappear afterwards if you like. Have a good time while you're here. And worship became a professionally managed transaction run by thieves. Run by thieves. Thieves who only wanted people to bring their money and then we'll handle the rest. Folks, is it possible for churches to fall into this? To slip into it? You know, we're going to manage the show. All you need to do is be sure to bring your money. Don't, don't bother to be prepared to sacrifice and bring your best. What you probably have still isn't good enough. We, we hire professionals to do it for you. We'll even do the singing for you, and you can just kind of you know, tap your foot as we move along. And it's possible for the entire ministry, the whole system of ministry, to become where everyone winds up on the employee payroll. Everyone there down to the drummer. Folks, ministry is not to be for profit. Our sacrifice is not to get something back. Um, But can that become a trap? You know, don't conclude. Think about it. Don't conclude that these merchants at the temple didn't actually think or reason that what they were doing was a good service to God. Don't think that they didn't, didn't feel like, well, you know, these people need our pigeons. I'm, I'm doing a good service here. God needs us to do this. The, the people need us to do this for them. I'm sure that uh, our, our work is justified and these people need my pigeons. And the wares which I will sell to them that they can take with them, you know, they're going to be they're going to serve as a valuable, to remind, a valuable reminder to everything that they, they experienced while they were here. This is important work that we're doing here. Folks, religion has always been big business. It's always been big business. And not only were the merchants providing people things which they didn't actually need to approach God, in many cases, people were required to purchase it. Or at least pay a fee. And the approaching of God got harder, not easier. They didn't make it easier to come to the Lord. Folks, worship was never intended to be this complicated. Never. I bet the Greeks were horrified by what they saw when they entered. The whole place needed to be cleansed. Verse 15 says that Jesus drove out those who were buying and selling in the, in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry, carry merchandise through the temple. And watch this. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a robber's den. His fury is unmistakable. He wanted them all out. Everybody out. It's hard to imagine how impassioned that Christ must have been 
and appeared to those in, in order to clear so many out of a large area. That Christ could clear this large of an area by himself is astonishing. Mark says that he would not even permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. You know, I, I don't even know how one man was able to achieve that. To accomplish that kind of feat in this large of an area. But I think we get a hint. I think we get a hint in the, in the next verse. The next verse it says this. The chief priests were afraid of him as the whole crowd was astonished at his what? Teaching. At his teaching. The authority of his teaching is what caused them to fear. Jesus was preaching at them as he was driving them out of the temple, as he was turning over the, the money changers' tables. Um, they are now completely exposed. Jesus is preaching so that they are exposed. I wouldn't doubt that some of the lines that he was preaching when he was driving those people out was from Jeremiah chapter 7 that we read earlier. It's a den of thieves. Don't tell yourself, you know, I'm at the temple. And then go on and do all this other stuff and to, and to do things to aliens and widows and the orphan and take advantage of them. Imagine if Jesus is preaching this as He's driving at you. Who's going to stand against that? No way. No one dared to resist Him. A couple things. Before we continue, because this comes up quite a bit. This describes, this, this narrative describes an infallible and, and sinless, omniscient Christ. Cleansing, by the way, his own temple. It is his. You know, sometimes you'll hear zealous people. They'll say, you know what, this is what we ought to do in every church. You know, we, we ought to just go around and do stuff like this today. Burst into churches, call people out, uh, false teachers out. Folks, you and I aren't Jesus. We don't enjoy omniscience of knowing everything. We don't enjoy perfection or sinlessness as Christ does. His judgments are always right. Ours are often not so right. It would be inappropriate and prideful to insert ourselves into His place in the Bible. That, that's not what we do. I don't remember. Someone might remind me of something this week. I don't remember a situation in the Bible where the apostles physically upended a church or synagogue, or even a, a pagan temple of any kind. Nor do I remember a place where we are commanded to. We are to be peaceable and gentle in spirit. You know, rage, anger, violence. That, that's the methodology of the unregenerate. Those who aren't saved. Jesus is not displaying here, nor condoning violence. You might have another opinion, but, but personally I believe here that Jesus is represented not so much as being physical, uh, not being physically violent at all, but rather being verbally authoritative in, in what he is doing. Uh, it was the authority of his words that astonished people uh, and prevented anyone from fighting back at him. Je Jesus always, whether he's in, in the in the uh, desert, being tempted by the devil, or throughout his whole ministry, he always goes back to, it is written. He always 
fights problems with the Word of God. Uh, He always returns to the Word of God, and he does here as he says, Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. You know, the, the, the cleansing and the purification process here arose through his impassioned teaching of the truth. And the people became fearful of his theology, of his authority. Today, the day in which we live, the Word of God remains the cleansing and purifying agent of God's temple. It still is today. Uh, we, we are, by the way, the temple of God, the, the people of God, not bricks and mortar. Flesh and blood. 1 Corinthians 3.16 tells us that, uh, teaches that we are collectively the temple of God. Yes, you are as an individual, but that's not for what 1 Corinthians 3 is talking about. 1 Corinthians 3 is talking about the temple that is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And we are being built up into a temple. And then he speaks to the local church as being a temple of people together, collectively. Not only as individuals. And sadly, there are a lot of people today who, who the Word of God flushes right out of a Bible-believing church. It cleansed right out, flushed out. Um, we would love for everyone who visits here to, to stay, to become part of this church, to receive the joy that we have heard in Christ. We'd like everybody to stay. Um, visitors, unbelievers, Gentiles, Greeks, come in and hear the Word of God. But I'll be honest, the plumbing works well around here. It works well. It cleanses. It flushes. We try to strive to preserve the Word of God, though, as the cleansing agent. Not ourselves. Not ourselves. Uh, the Word of God is the purifying agent to Christ's church. I imagine to myself, in my mind, and I encourage you to seek other sources. There's many who preach on this that are really good online. Um, pick out a good one. There's some awful ones, too. My impression, though, is this flushing of the temple it's only about 20% physical. I believe the, 80, the other 80% is theological. They didn't like hearing what Christ had to say. He, he was like Mr. Clean. You know, a guy on the commercial cleans everything. Jesus cleans it out. Um, so his words were, they were an indictment to the priests, to the merchants. Nobody could stand against his authority. I don't believe It was an unhinged anger that drove the people away. That's that's what I think. Uh, God's word will do just fine with that, all right? It works. I'd like you to notice one last thing before we depart. All sources I've consulted focused mainly on the corruption of the priests and the merchants who were selling. But my Bible says in verse 15... That Jesus also drove out those who were participating and purchasing and carrying merchandise throughout the temple. They're toting around their sack. Worship had been turned into a retail mall, folks. 
The temple was no, no longer offered to people as a place of worship and of prayer to seek God's mercy, but to acquire merchandise. Sadly, folks, this is the picture of Yahweh, the great God I am. This is the picture of Yahweh that Israel was projecting to the visitors and guests. you believe that? This is what people saw when they came to see Yahweh worshipped at Passover. I, I think it's no wonder the Greeks approached Philip asking, is there anyone here that can show us the way to Jesus? We'd like to see him. Folks, that's our job. As Christians, as a church, that is our job. When the living temple, uh, when we are the living temple, and this is our job to show Jesus when the living temple becomes a fraud. We need to show them uh, the way to Jesus. It is why Jesus turned to teach everyone, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? By this pattern, he affirms that it is the responsibility of godly leadership to ensure that teaching and prayer always remain the focus of a corporate gathering of God's people. Teaching and prayer. Uh, it's no surprise then, knowing this, that the apostles, were dist- uh, when they were distracted from this, um, by social pressures. There were widows who didn't have enough food. Acts 6 says that they began to delegate to others this responsibility of, important responsibility of feeding widows, saying, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. And when they had identified seven men, they declared, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Those are the things. And we are told... This statement found approval with the whole congregation. They're like, that's a good idea. And and at this time, that passage says, Acts chapter 6, a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So yeah, some of the priests even now are getting on board. After this clarification by the apostles that, that it's preaching, teaching, and the ministry of the word... Even some of those priests that were working in the temple now recognized they they had run off the tracks. They had left what is most important. It's no longer now that nation of Israel, that temple that was destroyed in 70 AD that is a light to the nations, but now it is those Gentiles who have become the light. It's the big switch right here. We've been handed that torch as Gentiles, the torch that Israel failed at. And spiritual leadership is again tasked with ensuring the word of God and prayer, the sacrificial worship, that that those remain the focus and emphasis always of the corporate gathering of God's people. Never a superficial worship uh, or on, on merchandise. Teaching and preaching are the ministry of the word. Worship through music and song. You love that new song we had today on, that we're going to sing in Easter? Wonderful stuff. Great truths in that. Worship through music and song is a ministry of the Word. And Colossians 3.16 says, when proper, properly orchestrated, worship music teaches and admonishes us. It is a ministry of the Word. Music is just like preaching. 
It is to teach and admonish us in the truth. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Worship's never to become superficial and detached, something that you buy a concert ticket to. We're not spectators in worship and sacrifice. Um, prayer is a ministry of the Word. This is going to be the subject of our focus next week. Prayer, too, is a ministry of the Word. Uh, as Jesus proclaims, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. The Word is the cleansing agent. Prayer serves to complete that cleansing of our hearts, our sanctification. We didn't have time to properly address this today, this this command of Jesus, my house will be a house of prayer. Um, We're going to focus on prayer, its purpose, its content, next Sunday as we look at Christ's prayer in John chapter 17. You might want to read that beforehand. It's called Christ's High Priestly Prayer. Prayer, John 17, and the subject, subjects about which we find pray, uh, prayers, the subjects of prayers that he, that he prays, they're going to humble us. They are going to humble us and cleanse us from unrighteousness. Verse 19, we'll close. When evening came, they would go out of the city. I'm going to insert a word here. Sorry about this, but it says, As they were passing by in the morning, they saw Israel withered from the roots up. Virtually the whole nation had been corrupted and dead. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, Israel, which you cursed, has withered. Of course it did. Of course it did. Jesus had already determined, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Israel had failed to be the light unto the nations in just a few more days. Just a couple more days from this point, the church is going to be handed the torch of sharing God's truth. Let us be bearers of His truth. Let's pray.